Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In Canada, wireless and broadband prices are too damned high. Why? The recent news of a merger attempt by Rogers and Shaw gives us a hint and a look into the world of telecom strategy and oligopoly. Indeed, observers would be forgiven for thinking that the country is a handful of telecom companies in a trench coat, perhaps with an airline or two crammed in there. But there's more to it than that. A bit more, anyway. Understanding wireless and broadband policy requires us to dig into the state of the industry, competition or lack thereof, the question of nationalization, the role of the Competition Bureau and the CRTC, and more. But eventually, we get to answer the big question. Why are our wireless and broadband bills so high? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Michael Geist, professor of law at the University of Ottawa and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Let's start by reviewing the proposed Rogers and Shaw merger, which was in the news recently, because it seems to me indicative of the state of telecom competition or lack thereof in this country. So what are the concerns for consumers around this merger? Is it job losses? Is it increased pricing? Is it poorer service? What should we be concerned about? Can I just say yes? Yes, of uh, course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think in, in many ways, it's all of the above. Um, the, there is clearly in the communities where Shaw in particular operates, there's, I think, going to be an impact ultimately from a, an employment perspective. I don't think that's specific to this particular deal. Anyone that pays attention to mergers knows that uh, so-called efficiencies are often part of the deal. And it's every reason to think that there will be an expectation of efficiencies. Indeed, notwithstanding some of the claims about that this won't have a negative impact, if indeed potentially a positive impact on jobs. I mean, it, it doesn't take much imagination to recognize that there is clear overlap between the two companies. You could think of that in terms of marketing jobs and regulatory jobs. You could think of the retail side. How long will, company, will the company maintain separate stores, kiosks in the same malls for what is ultimately the same owner. Uh, I think it's it's very likely if we look at the experience elsewhere that there will ultimately be job losses. For consumers, though, um, the impact is is dramatic as well. And you know, I think the the recognition, and I think it's it's widely recognized by most consumers. It's it's almost intuitive in many respects that if you take a significant competitor out of the marketplace and Shaw through its Freedom Mobile brand has become an important fourth player in some of Canada's most important markets, particularly British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario. If you take them out of the marketplace on the wireless side, ultimately prices are going up. There's going to be obviously less choice from a consumer perspective. And the government's longstanding approach when it comes to wireless policy premised on a robust, strong fourth carrier competitor in each major market will will have largely been blown up following the the arguments from the companies and from some politicians for instance jason kenny that suggests that this will lead to job growth <laughs> or you know or uh, uh 
a better competition. I mean, it's just the, some of the arguments have been utterly absurd on their face. It seems like there's a real effort to lay the groundwork to make sure that this, this thing goes through. But it makes me wonder where the Competition Bureau is going to be in all of this. I mean, are they likely to prevent a merger like this or do we expect that they'll ultimately allow it to go through, but with some conditions as, as they typically do? Because it seems, you know, someone pointed out to me, the Competition Bureau doesn't tend to, to, to quash mergers. I mean, I, I was told they, like, they quashed one in their history. Uh, the rest are sort of allowed through with amendments. So what do we expect that they'll do in this case? Right. Well, so there are several layers of review, and and one of the most important ones certainly is the is the is will come from the Competition Bureau itself, um, which obviously has has the mandate to review from the competitive impact of the of the proposed merger. Their their mandate involves reviewing mergers to determine whether they are likely to result in a substantial lessening or preventing of competition. Now, on its face, I think many consumers and I think many industry observers would say, well, of course it's going to have that. But uh, I think as you point out in your question, that's really not the end of the story if we take a look at at this bureau. I, I don't doubt that they take their, their role seriously, but if we look fairly recently at the proposed Air Canada Air Transat merger, uh, I think people might have looked at that deal and thought much the same. In fact, ultimately, there were European competition regulators that looked at it and said they are concerned about its impact on competition and effectively were able to kill the deal. The the fact that two major Canadian airlines ultimately had their deal quashed not by Canadian regulators, (laughs) but rather by European regulators for what is literally just a handful of routes, I think highlights uh, where our competition bureau is at. I, I don't know that anybody's making a big bet that they're going to stand in stand in the way of the merger, even though the, it's quite clear there are significant concerns uh, publicly and politically as well when it comes to this deal. You know, if they don't stand in the way or say an absolute no, um, then then the discussion and the debate turns to well, under what conditions would they permit? this deal to occur. And and I was recently before a House of Commons committee that was studying this merger. And the position of many of the panelists who appeared that day was that the merger should not go through, full stop. Uh, But then, of course, it still leads to the the next question. Well, well, what if? Uh, Mm. You know, what would it take? And, you know, so my response to that question, I was asked directly was that there at a minimum ought to be a full divestiture of the wireless assets, you just you you have to maintain the fourth player. But even there, you know, if those assets end up in the hands of a relatively weak competitor, one that doesn't have enough of a footprint or the capital to engage in significant competition, then there's no doubt that it's still ultimately going to undermine the broader competitive impact. And you know, the by proposing this merger at this moment in time, precisely when the government's moving forward with a spectrum auction and we start thinking about 5G, Shaw's now sat out of that auction. And so, you know, the reality is that they're setting up a situation that even with a divestiture, the new company that gets those assets will be in a weakened position because they won't even have participated effectively in the in the new spectrum auction that a lot of companies are looking to as being an important part of how they build out into build out their next generation networks so for rogers is this a 5g play is that what this is fundamentally about 
So that's a great question. And, you know, I, I'm sure that wireless plays a big role in this, uh, but I don't think it's just wireless. So, you know, in some ways we could go back historically and recognize that these two companies have had a, I guess an interesting relationship for for many many years, going back decades to the the two founders who put their names on the respective companies. Yeah, you know, those those founders largely carved up the marketplace. Uh, so it was a cable play, of course, at that point in time. And cable competition is different from wireless competition, you know, given that you've got to dig holes dig dig holes in the ground and uh, end up with. Um, cable directly to the home. And so there's less competition in that regard between cable companies. And in this case, they gave each other uh, respective areas and, and, you know, they compete in the broad sense of being competitive cable companies, but not competing typically for the same customer. Uh, the wireless world is, is, is different. Now, those two companies have been talking about merging given the cable assets in particular for a very long time. It is possible, or at least those discussions have been ongoing for off and on for a long time. It is entirely possible that the companies will say there is still value in a merger, even if what we are merging is the cable assets. If you're Rogers, you still have your large wireless footprint, and now you've added some significant cable assets. Oh, and by the way, even if there was a full divestiture, in many situations, it's going to be a weakened competitor anyway. And so... Not a bad outcome if you're Rogers, not perhaps the the optimal one if your hope was also to gain the wireless assets, but still uh, probably enough to go ahead with the merger as is. So you mentioned that there are different layers to this, and one of them is the Competition Bureau, but another one is the CRTC. I mean, where does the, the, the CRTC fit into all of this? I, not just the Rogers-Shaw merger, potential Rogers-Shaw uh, merger, but also the uh, state of telecom service in Canada more generally. I mean, what what role do they play in shaping these policy outcomes and then the regulatory regime? And where are they perhaps succeeding and where are they failing? Right. Well, you know, we could start by recognizing that the Competition Bureau is responsible for the competitive impact under the Competition Act. Uh, and so that's that's where their role plays. That's where they where they come they come as part of this. But the the CRTC has a a role to play here as well. They're of course the the regulator uh, when it comes to telecommunications. The Telecommunications Act doesn't require prior approval of telecommunications mergers, but CRTC has responsibility under the Telecoms Act for ensuring compliance with a whole wide range of things, everything from foreign ownership and control to regulatory authority over the telecommunications system. And so uh, I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to play a role in terms of identifying what that impact of the merger would be and then engage in an analysis as to whether or not it either gets approved or if it does get approved under what circumstances. So they're going to look at the regulatory issues that can arise as a result of the transaction, um, and potentially seek to make some changes. There's, you know, it's as part of the deal, there may be broadcast elements, there's broadcast elements, at least in terms of what Rogers owns, which um, which then potentially figures into some of the discussions. But there is a role for the, the CRTC with respect specifically to the merger. More broadly, though, and I think this is where it gets more important and in certain respects a bit more discouraging when it comes to the CRTC. They've clearly got a, as I say, a core role when it comes to telecom in Canada. And that includes 
various regulatory policies that could be used to develop or facilitate greater competition in the country. And I think the perspective of many is that the current CRTC anyway has has failed to live up to what I think most were hoping for when it came to uh, the competitive environment. Canada Canadians still pay some of the highest prices for wireless services in the world, and the bureau has uh, sorry, the competi- the CRTC has been slow at best to address many of those issues. I've learned, you know, after years of being quote unquote extremely online, too online that there are a few iron laws of social media. And one of them is uh, nobody is ever going to defend Doug Ford. And another one is you can have a run at the airlines and the telecom companies online and, and no one is ever going to try to stop you. In fact, everyone will jump on board. Uh, one of my favorite jokes is to say that Canada is three telecom companies in a trench coat. And uh, that seems to resonate with people. And yet, we don't seem to see that frustration reflected in regulatory outcomes and political outcomes. We keep hearing that cellular and internet prices in Canada, for instance, are high because of things like density and geography. This is sort of a couple of the industry lines. Uh, I don't buy it. I, I, to me, it seems like a competition issue, but I might be wrong. Is there something to that argument I'm missing, or is this really just a matter of competition, the high prices. Right, well, there's a few things to unpack there, but if we stick specifically to the issue around uh, high, high wireless prices and, and the source of those high wireless prices in Canada, I think it is ultimately a competition issue. Uh, now, competition can come from any number of different sources. Of course, it can come from foreign competitors and for too long in Canada, we had restrictions on foreign ownership. We we opened the door a crack to foreign ownership, but we still are relatively close to foreign owners, at least by comparison to many other countries. It can be achieved. The, so we haven't achieved the kind of competition that we might otherwise have achieved through foreign ownership. We haven't achieved it, at least to date on the wireless side, through regulatory approaches, for example, MVNOs, mobile virtual network operators, who could use some of the spectrum, some of the networks from the incumbent carriers, but have direct relationships with customers and and pay for what they use in terms of being able to offer up the service on a wholesale level. That would be another mechanism of injecting competition. And on that front, the CRTC has been very, very slow in moving forward. They had you know, there's been a whole series of decisions, one of which sure seemed like, as you were reading it, to think that the CRTC was going to create some sort of mandated system to allow for that. And then they stopped short at the very end. More recently, government has said they want to see something move forward with this, and we're waiting for a CRTC decision that may at least spell out some mechanisms for this form of competition. Um, but the truth is, you know, we are have been left with uh, an uncompetitive environment, at least when contrasted with many other jurisdictions. And, you know, the government's approach, leaving aside MVNOs or foreign entrants, has been to say, well, we want that fourth carrier. We recognize that's a, a crucial part of the equation. And so they did things like spectrum set-asides, making spectrum cheaper for new entrants. But that 
hasn't worked until in many ways seeing Shaw link up with or acquire the the freedom assets and suddenly now you had a viable fourth player until that time you had some additional competition at the margins but the big incumbents are very effective at, at deploying flank, flanker brands and other techniques uh, to try to keep new competitors at bay is there anything to the the geography and density argument i mean uh, you know I, I know canadians often say well look i can go to europe and pop in a sim card and and have at or uh, it's it's a much obviously more dense market it's a different market the united states isn't a great example they've got their own problems but then you look to australia and you see a very different situation in australia than you do from canada so if, if we're doing if we're giving the carriers the benefit of the doubt is there anything to the geography and density argument or is it really just a shield for anti-competitive practices well, I think it's, you know, if I had to pick one or the other, I think it's more of the latter. Right. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Australia. I think that's, um, to me, that that that's one of the best comparisons that we have, uh, you know, so you know, those that, that are quick to respond to claims about the, the lower pricing that you'll find in Europe will often say, well, hold on a second, big market, if you include the entire EU, and of course, quite dense, densely populated in, in much much of the continent or in many of the countries there. Uh, Australia, though, compares uh, much more favorably in terms of uh, a you know, reasonable comparison, apples to apples comparison with Canada, because it does have very large uh, geographic areas that are also rural and remote with, with limited populations. And so if this was strictly a matter of we're big country or and and or as part of that large country we know that there's large parts of it that just don't have large enough populations to make it economically viable for the carriers to invest heavily in those areas you know the, the same would be true in in place like australia and yet for anyone that's ever had the chance to go there and largely pre-COVID times you know that you walk out of the airport in sydney and there are a whole series of different kiosks from different competitors waiting for you in the airport, ready to offer up a SIM that will have data and phone usage that most Canadians could only dream about for the frac for a fraction of the cost. And, you know, the reality there is they've got major foreign entrants that come into the marketplace and they've got that competition that that we don't have. And so I think our experience really is one where if you take a look at the data, the biggest driver is ultimately competition. Now, of course, does it cost to to create a nationwide network where everybody has service, no matter the community? Of course it does. But you know, the, the reality for the large carriers is that there are still many of these communities that don't have that kind of connectivity. They are investing very heavily in largely urban areas. That's where uh, That's where they get the biggest bang for the buck, whether we're talking about wireless or broadband. And that makes those areas little different than community cities uh, around the world where prices are oftentimes far lower. In thinking about that argument that, well, you know, the, the infrastructure is expensive, it's especially expensive in low density areas and remote areas. Uh, one of the pushbacks is, okay, well then we'll, let's talk about public infrastructure. If, if, if the private market doesn't want to do it, then maybe there's a role for the public to do it and have it 
public owned. And so if, if part of the problem is competition, one way to look at, at the problem is to say, okay, well then solving this means more competition, foreign competition, domestic competition. The other way to look at it is to say, okay, what we need is, is either a public ownership of the infrastructure or public ownership of the provider. Uh, so to what extent does, does the public play a role or ought the public to play a role in that? Uh, you know, we do have a public carrier, for instance, in Saskatchewan. Uh, is that something we should be looking at elsewhere or, or nationally even? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I get part of it. And part of the challenge oftentimes with this debate is that we often flip easily between broadband connectivity and wireless connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the broadband side, which is, of course, also an essential part of communications for, for all Canadians. I, I think you do find that there are some really interesting and notable community initiatives. Uh, we're seeing proposals to move forward along those lines in Toronto, but we've seen it in many rural and remote communities as well, who frustrated with long delays of, of seeing broadband fiber or other sorts of connectivity approaches in their communities just never showing up, take matters into their own hands. Um, for a long time, they faced their own sets of challenges, connectivity or interconnectivity challenges with some of the larger carriers who weren't so happy to see that competition. Uh, and I do think that the lesson that we can take from that is it's not easy to run a network, but you know, if we're going to invest public dollars and in pl- some places, it does appear that the only way we are going to get the kind of connectivity that we'd like to see happen is with public investment. Well, with public investment comes the opportunity for the public to set the rules in the public interest. And that can, and should, not only can, but should include, it seems to me, things like uh, open networks that can then be used by any number of different players to try to create more competition. Uh, I think it's tougher on the wireless side. Wireless, of course, involves acquiring spectrum, uh, running these networks, cell towers. I mean, there's just, there, there's an infrastructure layer that is very, very challenging beyond just the, all the various issues of running a network. Think of the roaming issues. This is, this is not an easy space to enter into. And of course, that's been a competitive advantage for the large incumbents. I think in many ways, that's why we've seen significant emphasis on things like MVNOs. So that idea of, well, it's expensive and inefficient in many ways to require further network bill facilities building uh, in some of these communities. We can use the existing facilities, the, the owners of those facilities, the large incumbents will be paid for the usage. They will make a profit, though not the same profit they might otherwise make in the current direct-to-consumer residential type space, but they'll still it will still be profitable. Uh, but that those new competitors in the space will then be able to seek to distinguish themselves and offer up different kinds of services, perhaps offer up better customer services, a range of different kinds of ways that they might try to enter into the marketplace and compete in the same way that we've seen on the broadband side, which will both have the salutary effect of giving individual consumers more choice, oftentimes with better pricing or better service, and hopefully encourage the incumbents to up their game as well as these competitors become true viable competitors. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's capitalism 101. I, you know, I follow these debates fairly closely and I'm, I'm glad you disaggregate the, the wireless and broadband because often I forget to, in my head, it makes sense. And then I realize I'm, I'm talking to other people and I need to point out 
which one I'm talking about. But for both, uh, capitalism 101 is that, look, it's a competitive marketplace and competition is good because it drives innovation, it provides opportunities and so on and so forth. Uh, and yet these companies seem to then turn around and, and uh, betray what they, they pretend is a, is a commitment to the market. That seems to me a place where government ought to be doing some work. And if we look at political parties who, who pay lip service to broadband and wireless consumers and their frustrations, we then look at their track record and it's less clear they're making progress. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the liberal government who promised to do something about the prices and have yet to seem to deliver any meaningful change there. I mean, what's the state of the liberal government's plan to lower prices for consumers on, on, uh, on wireless, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I must admit, one might say what plan? Yeah, um, <laughs> ask nicely. You know, they, yeah, I mean, they, they set out a target and we can discuss the target <laughs> if you like, because it seems <laughs> to me that the target never really did what or would do what I think consumers are looking for. So their target was a 25% reduction in wireless costs. They say that on certain baskets, they're, they're getting close. So prices are, are declining on certain baskets. Of course, that doesn't mean a whole lot if Canada's, let's say, declining by 20% so far, um, but some of the other jurisdictions have declined by 30%. Uh, that would suggest that we're further behind than we were before. And so part of the problem is, of course, wireless prices for especially legacy or older baskets are declining. I mean, the reality of, this, of the industry is that over time, you get more. Um, overtime is bandwidth. As people use more and more uh, data, we often find that it does get more competitive in terms of the, it can get more competitive in terms of at least some of the pricing. Um, and part of that stems from the fact that they've built out these networks, they want to see them used. And so um, they're going to try to maximize usage as a mechanism to generate or maximize revenues that they get. But, you know, looking at it without the broader context of where we stand relative to other jurisdictions, which the liberal target doesn't do, um, much less looking at the competitive environment and sort of trying to determine whether or not have they established any sort of policies that will have succeeded in generating or facilitating greater competition? And I must admit, I mean, they at best, I think the most charitable response would be the jury is still out. But uh, I think that if you take a look at what's the state of the Canadian market right now, you know, we're still waiting on some kind of confirmation on MVNOs. The government has sent some signals that they are buying into some of the big telecom arguments around investment and cost. And so in one of their responses to the CRTC, the language in there adopted some of the language that the big telecom has, has used. And, you know, I think that many took that as a pretty clear signal of a shift and a shift more towards the large telecom companies. Indeed, I think you could make the case that this merger between Rogers and Shaw doesn't happen without that kind of language. It almost felt like the government was, you know, was saying, well, okay, we, we recognize some of your arguments and are sympathetic to them. And so, you know, Rogers and Shaw are hoping to go back effectively to the, the Bell MTS playbook from a merger in Manitoba a number of years ago, uh, put forward a bunch of goodies, hope that the government and the various regulators say, okay, 
And I think that's been their strategy. It remains to be seen whether it plays out. But, you know, the government hasn't, I don't think, done a ton on this issue. And to the extent to which we had a, a champion on this issue in the former minister, uh, Navdeep Baines, who at least understood the sector and certainly had spoke, spoke about it regularly and expressed concerns around consumer-related issues. There's now been a change in minister, and uh, this minister, Champagne, has not said a lot about this issue, much less a lot about many of the other digital issues that are out there. Is there anyone else that's getting us excited about hope for the future? I mean, you know, the new Democrats, the conservatives either have a plan or seem likely to develop a plan that will deliver either better competition through the the free market or through a public option or public carrier. I, I, I'm trying to think back to, well, the previous conservative government seemed at least committed to, to more competition. The NDP, I'm not sure where they are on this right now. Is there anything that's that's pointing towards uh, political competition that might give us some hope? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I, I'd start by noting that at least in terms of the public comments that we've seen, all of the parties seem to be in violent agreement on this issue, that they're very, very <laughs> concerned or yeah. very, very, very concerned uh, about the impact this has on competition. So the fact that they've even held hearings on this merger, despite the fact that it ultimately falls to independent agencies and regulators to address, at least, or ministers to address as opposed to MPs, highlights that at a minimum, they see that there is at least political opportunity here to mm -hmm. express concern about competition. So, you know, if there's, I guess if there's a silver lining, it's that there is now certainly broad recognition within our various political parties about some of these issues and concerns around some of these issues. So I think that's, that's a positive step to be sure. Um, more broadly, though, I'm not sure that any of them have real answers. The conservatives have, have had some emphasis on foreign competition. You are right, I think, to say that under the Harper government, they were pretty comfortable taking an oppositional role to the large telecom companies. They saw it as a political winner, and they did. Um, and, you know, we ended up with a CRTC that was, was certainly a bit more pro-consumer than I think the one is right now. Um, this current liberal government seems to want to try to be friends with everybody and sort of say, well, we're not going to, we don't want to antagonize those companies too much, but we also want to protect consumers. I think conservatives did their best to sort of say, hey, we know which side we're going to be on and it's going to be more on the side of the consumers. That to me was a pretty favorable position, but they still struggled to realize significant change in the market. They, you know, they were very hopeful of attracting a major foreign competitor that was at one point in time, Verizon kicked the tires on possibly coming into the Canadian market, but ultimately chose not to. And uh, there's, you know, the, the playbook is limited in certain respects, uh, although we've talked about some of the things that can be done. The playbook also takes a lot of time. And that's one of the disconnects, I think, that exists between political solutions and sort of and and impact in the marketplace is that there is no switch that you can flick and suddenly we've got more competition and prices go down this this plays out over a number of years and it's one of those things that before you know it either prices are higher or lower or um, we've got competitors that are making inroads or they're not and 
the political cycle, time cycle is much shorter, especially when we find ourselves as now in a minority government situation. So even if you put in effective policy measures, you're unlikely to necessarily be around to be able to brag about them once they've had their desired impact. That seems to me to be one of the fundamental problems with with political leadership and in most democracies really is that the the problems are long-term and the electoral cycles are short-term, right? (laughs) um, Which which is why in part you'd hope that the independent bodies would take the long view, but sometimes it doesn't seem that they do either. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think though that we, we, we should recognize that there is, you know, there are issues that are long-term issues that resonate enough with the public that they can be they can be winners if you take positions, you know, clearly articulated positions, make the case that these are the policy measures that you've put into place. And then, you know, you hope that you you get enough of an outcome that uh, you can point to some measure of success. I mean, the environment, of course, is a perfect example of a long-term enormous issue for all of us. And uh, it's, it's tough to show significant results in the short term, but it's pretty clear the public is looking for action. And so the political parties, uh, most are anyway, are looking to respond in some fashion. Uh, I would have thought that there is some potential for the same on the telecom side. It, you know, it was the Harper government. And if this, for this, we have to go back many years to sort of a, a minutia issue for most of the public uh, known as usage-based billing, UBB, which had to do with competition, the broadband side and some of these independent providers. Uh, And at that time, the government, there was a policy change from the CRTC, the the independent carriers, some really loyal customers were, were able to get those people active and speaking out. And the government, I remember hearing from one minister said that they heard more on that issue than really almost any other issue that they'd ever heard of before from the public. So it was clearly an issue that was resonating in a, in a significant way with the public. And, you know, that I think sparked a realization in the government that these issues were, were pocketbook issues for the public. They were issues that really resonated. And, you know, the, I guess if there's any reason for optimism, it's to say that, you know, if you recognize the public, this does resonate with the public. There is concern, as you suggested. It's easy to criticize these telecom companies. Everybody's doing it, and everybody's got their story about how uh, they either got bad service or a better deal somewhere else. Um, if you can find almost any way to show that this is your shared concern and you are taking action to do something about it, it's got to be a political winner. Yeah, and I think the climate analog is a good one because there is, as you mentioned, a consensus that that it's a problem and something that needs, you know, something needs to be done, and that the political parties have have come to agree on that, even though they might disagree about how things ought to be done. I mean, even looking at climate, even the Conservative Party now talks about climate action. They they, ha- they have to distinguish themselves, so they won't they don't want the carbon tax, but they are still committed to some form of climate action. And it seems like this is is similar insofar as every party is committed to doing something. But then, then of course, when the rubber hits the road, we're sort of left looking and saying, well, well, what is that exactly? And and I am now looking ahead, facing down the moment, which is you know, we're facing a pandemic, we're facing a pandemic recovery at some point, we're facing an election. 
presumably sometime before 2021 is out. Uh, do we expect that things are going to start getting better for broadband and wireless consumers in the in the months and years to come? I mean, is that on the agenda in such a way that we think there's going to be a meaningful development in the next several years? Uh, or, or is it too early to tell? I mean, I'm thinking back to the first question in the Rogers-Shaw merger. If that does go through, that doesn't seem to bode well for it. But what you know, maybe it won't go through and, and we will have meaningful action and get prices not just lower, but lower in a way that's consistent with peer countries. I mean, uh, is there a reason? Yeah, I, well, there are a number of issues that are playing out right now. So, you know, I think depending on how those issues play out, it's possible that we'll have an impact. It may not be a short, short-term impact, but it's one that we will, that we will see things play out over time. Um, I would, you know, and I think they're the issues we've been talking about. This merger is certainly one of them. Um, you know, the, the impact won't be felt immediately. It's going to take presumably a full year for this to go through the regulatory process. Agencies and governments are fond of using as much time as you give them. Uh, and so it seems, seems to me that they're going to use the maximum amount of time to reach a decision. Delay will be the order of the day. Um, but eventually we will get some sort of decision. If there is a merger that will have an impact, even if there isn't a merger, I think there's already been an impact because, as, I, as we mentioned earlier, with Shaw stepping out of the Spectrum auction, given the proposed merger, that, that has an impact on their long-term competitiveness. Um, we will also see the CRTC reach some kind of decision on this on the mobile virtual network operators on MVNOs. And that, too, depending mm -hmm. on what they decide, will have some amount of impact on what the marketplace looks like. So. There's at least a couple of those issues that are at play, um, but you know the you know short of that, there there is no magic telecom provider that is going to descend on the country and suddenly we're going to find our prices far more competitive than when compared to many other countries. And so there is no. I'm going to close out on this point, sort of coming up against time. But there is no single solution to this. Then, right? I mean, sometimes if you pay attention to some of the of, of the superficial dialogue, everyone has their pet solution. But recognizing that the timelines are long, but also recognizing that the issue is complex. I mean, there is, is there a single thing that changes the game or is it a matter of saying there's actually a whole bunch of things we need to do on both wireless broadband or one or the other in order to create a more friendly marketplace for consumers? Uh, or, you know, is there, is it, is it gonna take a suite of, of policies or, or is there, or am I missing something? Is there in fact a silver bullet? I mean, you know, it's either foreign competition or nationalizing, uh, providing a public carrier or nationalizing X, Y, or Z. I mean, is there something there that would change it or is it a matter of saying, no, it's gonna take a whole bunch of little things? Yeah, so I think I would start by saying, you're right, there is no, uh, there is no silver, magic, silver bullet here. There's no magic solution that's gonna solve all of this. Uh, you know, I think there there have been over the years, there's been various hoped for solutions that people thought might have that effect. Certainly the, the early spectrum set asides and the creation of a of a market where there were new entrants invited, held out, people held out hope that that would have that impact. It's, you know, it's it certainly profited some people that got involved in that market, able to get spectrum at relatively cheaper prices. 
truth is we've seen a lot of consolidation after that. Um, those assets, though, of course, are the assets, or some of those assets are the assets that are, that are at play right now um, in this deal. So clearly it has had some impact. Um, we talked earlier about the prospect of a foreign entrant, and for a while that was you know, where the government at the time, the conservative government, put all their chips on the table, hoping that uh, that would be a game changer. And I think it was fair to say that if we would have got a large global player uh, that might have been a game changer, at least in the markets where they, the main markets where they operated, um, they would have had uh, the ability to offer up roaming services, certainly at more price competitive um, price points than the Canadian incumbents. They would have had buying power when it came to devices that would have had a range of things that would have created some significant new competition and hopefully would have what we hoped were, were new innovations in the market too. Um, that didn't happen though, obviously. And now the betting is on things like MVNOs. And mm. you know, I think the MVNO side is is fine. I think that it has the potential to create to create some competition in some places. And so that's a good thing, whether or not it sort of takes us all the way where we need to go in terms of being able to finally look at the Canadian market and stop seeing on these charts, Canada at one end, invariably with high prices uh, or less bang for the buck. Uh, I'm not sure that any of those approaches, at least on their own, would achieve it. And so in some ways it is, it's 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 looking at the the regulatory policy and political toolbox and using everything at our disposal. Well, sadly, that brings us to time, although we've covered a lot of ground in a short period. And I have to say, uh, first of all, my thanks to you, uh, Michael Geis, for joining me here today and taking us through a complicated issue in a, in a really concise and, and productive way. So thanks very much for that. Oh, thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. And, and as always, thanks to Aaron Reynolds and Mira Ahmad who make this possible and to everyone who listens. And I just want to add on uh, a thanks to myself for not whinging for 45 minutes about my own experience with providers, which I promised myself I wouldn't do and didn't. So we, we all come away winners today, at least in, in this podcast, if not in the telecom market. So as always, thanks to everyone for listening and joining us for this time. And we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.